Hi, and welcome to Stony Creek Radio, the sermon podcast of Stony Creek Baptist Church in London, Ontario. We're glad you've tuned in for today's sermon. My name is Ryan, and I'll be your host today. If you're listening to Stony Creek Radio for the first time, this series begins on episode 16. As we study Ecclesiastes together in this series, Chasing the Wind, we're going to be wrestling through some of life's biggest and most important questions. And our prayer is that we'll see together how God brings meaning to everything under the sun by means of His Son. Thanks for joining us. Let's jump right into today's sermon. We are continuing our series in the book of Ecclesiastes. And the goal this morning when I set out was I was planning to do chapters 4 and 5 this morning. Last week I was planning to do chapters 3, 4, and 5 and stuck with just 3. And this morning was going to be 4 and 5, but we're going to just stick to chapter 4 today. Two reasons for that. Uh, one reason is, as I'm studying through Ecclesiastes, my intention was to do a five-week series on Ecclesiastes and kind of take j- uh, large kind of chunks of it and work through some of the main themes that we see throughout it. But as I've been studying, I, it just kind of hit me just how applicable all of this is to the days in which we are living today. And then secondly, the response from you, the conversations that have come up either with me or that I've heard come up between your family and with friends and those kinds of things as a result of what we've been studying, I've never heard so much chatter about things that have come up through the studies that we've been doing. So if anyone's here this morning and was like, I don't want to do Ecclesiastes for more than five weeks, sorry, you're stuck with it. We are going to go, (laughs) going to slow it down a little bit and kind of take maybe chapter by chapter. We'll kind of see how it goes as we're working through it. But just chapter four this morning. And what we're going to see in chapter four is him, Solomon, building off what he has shared with us in the first three chapters already. And he's going to give us a very important lesson. And that lesson is something that we try to teach our kids. And that Solomon is going to try to teach us today. My kids, uh, for those of you who don't know, I got some young kids. I have a six-year-old, a four-year-old, and a three-year-old. Those are three of the six. And they don't like to share. So one of the things we try to teach them is how to share. So when they get something and a friend comes over, no, you share that with your friends. When you have candy and you see a friend nearby, to share that with a friend. And we all try to teach our kids how to share. We were at yesterday, the birthday party of Aubriella Champeau, Mandy and Corey's daughter, turned turn two. Many of you know Mandy and Corey. We're at a birthday party, and the kids went home with their treat bags. And inside the treat bags, there was uh, some toys, but then also a whole bunch of candy. And Libby, my six-year-old, said, one piece only, and then we'll have more later. Well, by the time I even could get home from her, she had eaten all of the candy out of that treat bag. But Olivia, who's four years old, she's a little, uh, she, she likes to hoard things and save things for later. So she had one piece of candy, but then saved all of the rest. While Libby, who now had an empty bag of candy, and Olivia, who now had a practically full bag of candy, Libby wanted to teach Olivia what we've been trying to teach them and force her to share. She didn't want to share, but Olivia, you need to share with me. Sharing is caring, Olivia. (laughs) You need to 
share with me. And then what proceeded was Olivia saying, no. <laughs> Following my Libby, chasing her around our kitchen to say, you need to share. Sharing is caring. You need to share with me. Libby didn't want to share, but she wanted her to share because she had something that she wanted. But this lesson that we try to teach our kids over and over again, the importance of sharing, that's what Solomon is going to teach us today. In chapters 1 to 3, we've seen Solomon talking about all the things that we chase to try to find meaning and happiness and contentment. And many of these things are good gifts that God has given to us, but the problem comes when we make them ultimate things. So rather than make them ultimate things, things that we look to to find happiness and meaning and contentment, we're supposed to approach them, as we've seen in the first three chapters, as gifts from God. So we approach them as gifts. We recognize we've done nothing to deserve the gifts that God has given to us, and so we enjoy them as gifts. We have thankful hearts to God for giving us, the many gifts that he's given to us. And what Solomon's going to build on now in chapter four is, as you enjoy those things, as you enjoy God's gifts, be sure to share. Remember to share. And some of you are like, I came this morning to be told to share. But, <laughs> yep. <laughs> the reality is, it is a whole lot harder to do this than what we often think. So much harder to live, not with a closed hands, but with an open hands. So Solomon's going to build on this idea that don't forget to share. And he's going to develop this idea through this by not mentioning God one time in this entire chapter. If you see God's not even mentioned one time, He's going to be talking about the vanity of all of these things as if to say to us that what you have is less important than what you do with what you have. So share. How can we share these things? And he's, what he's going to do is going to develop within these verses we're going to look at today this truth that something he, discover, something he discovers, a truth he discovers, and it's this. That oftentimes, when we don't share, that's the cause of our pain and the pain of others. That when we don't share and we try to hoard everything for ourselves, we have two hands full grasping for everything, looking for all of these things to give us life and meaning, and we look out only for ourselves, that that is often the root cause of not only our pain, but also the pain of others, both. Result of pain when we don't share, when we only think of ourselves and we only think of our needs and our dreams and what we want. We don't give a rip about others. When we seek to live our lives completely isolated from others, when we're motivated by envy, he's going to say, envy of others. When we don't recognize that we were created by God to thrive in relationship with others. And when we work hard to rise to the top and don't give a rip about who we trample on our way up to the top. When we live like this, and so often this is how the world calls us to live, when we live like this and expect to find contentment or happiness or peace within ourselves, it's like Solomon saying, I feel sorry for you because you won't find it there. It's all vanity. It's like chasing the winds. 
And this is why he's going to help us see the importance of shifting from me to we. From shifting to only thinking about ourselves and to also think about the needs and the joys of others. And what we'll discover when we do that is we will find happiness. We will find joy. We will find contentment as we pursue that. There's a book that I work through with every married couple that, we, uh, that I work through premarital counseling with, and the book is called From Me to We. So that's why I ripped off the title from, even though this, has, this isn't referring only to marriage. Marriage is a part of this. It's not referring to only to marriage. But I think it's one of the most important principles that we can learn, not just in marriage, but in everyday life, in marriage especially. Because in marriage, you know what happens when you get married? I know a lot of people that get married, and I sit across from premarital counseling, and and they have this kind of sparkle in their eye, like, fight? We're never going to fight. Disagreements? No, we just love each other so much. Maybe you never met with anyone who loves each other as much as we do. But here's what happens in marriage. You connect yourself for life with another sin-filled person. How do you, why do you ever think that's going to solve your problems? And so this shift that happens in marriage, in marriage, what happens is right away, you have a mirror to your face. I thought I was a selfless person and then I got married and now a mirror in my face at my selfishness. And then you have kids and the mirror gets just a little bit closer and you be, I thought I was a patient person. Then I had kids and I realized just how impatient I can be. And it's the importance of living in relationship with others, not just in marriage, but outside of that as well. And this is how God has built us to thrive for our own sanctification. And we're going to see the importance of shifting from kind of me only thinking to to, to we, to stop asking only the question, how am I doing? But also ask the question, how are we doing? So it's an important shift that we need to make. And he wants to tell us to make this shift because he's going to tell us living for yourself alone is not going to lead you to where you think it's going to lead you. It's not going to lead you to the happiness and the quietness of soul, the peace, the shalom that you're hoping that it's going to lead you to. So Ecclesiastes chapter 4, I'll stop telling you what it's about and let's look at it together. Verse 1 of Ecclesiastes 4 starts with the oppressions and the oppressors that he sees. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And then, behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of the oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who were already dead, more fortunate than the living who were still alive, but better than both, as he was not yet been, and not yet seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. So you see a whole bunch of repetitive words there or phrases. You got oppression, oppressed, uh, oppressors. So that, that, that telling us a little bit what it's about. And then it says there's no one to comfort them. And then that's bracketed by this statement of what he's looking for, everything under the sun. So he looks under the sun. He sees oppression everywhere. He sees evil flourish. He sees people are taking advantage of others, oppressing others, continuing to thrive and it's troubling him. Now, what's interesting here is oftentimes when we see that, and it doesn't, you don't have to look far in our world today, just as he didn't have to look far in his world, 
to see evil flourish, to see oppression continue. And there's something inside of us when we see that that, 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 that just knows there's something wrong with that. The question we often go to, and that I've had conversations with so many people over the years, is a question that's a good question. The question is, if God is such a loving God, why does evil continue to flourish? You look across the globe, and God is a God of love. He is a God who is good. The scriptures say that. So why doesn't he do something about the evil that is prevailing? And there are countless answers that people come to in answer to that question. And that's a question that is a legitimate and a very good question to wrestle with. And I think an important question for you to wrestle with because it's a question that the world is asking. And if we had a bit more time, I would deal with that question. But the reason I'm not going to deal with that question this morning is because that's not what Solomon goes to. Often we ask, look at all the oppression I see. Where's God in the midst of that? Solomon doesn't ask that question. He goes to two different places. One, he sees oppression everywhere, evil everywhere, and in Solomon-like fashion says, it would be better if I was dead than if I saw all this. In fact, even better than that, if I wasn't even alive in the first place to see all of this evil. And that sounds very bleak. Better to be dead than live in this world of oppression and evil. And sometimes you can hear Biblical authors say that and say, is he allowed to say that? Should he really be saying that? But when you look at life under the sun, it's a very natural conclusion to come to. When you look at the evil in this world, to then say, it's better off not even to know about this evil, to have to deal with this evil, to have to wrestle with the reality that evil prevails in this world. So that's one place he goes to. It's better to be dead or not. Basically, he goes to non-existence. It's better to not exist than to have to wrestle with the oppression that this does in this world. But then the second place he goes, or the other is really the first place, but it's the other place he goes, where we often say, "Look at all this evil in this world. Look at all this oppression in the world. Where is God in the midst of this?" What Solomon says is. Look at all this evil in this world. Look at all this oppression in this world. Where are the people that are coming alongside them in their time of need? That's the question that Solomon goes to here. He says there's no one to comfort them. And we know that there is the Holy Spirit, the comforter, who in times when uh, we know persecution around the world and you hear stories of people who are in prison, who, who, taught, who talk about the, the presence of the Spirit, who was with them, who comforted them through it all. And many of you can share stories of times in, in, in where you have experienced evil, or you have experienced suffering in some fashion, and you, you have known the Holy Spirit has been there, and he has comforted you along the way. And sometimes he uses people to come alongside you in that time and comforts you through those people. But it's the spirit of time and comforts you, spirit of God who does that. So life above the sun, we know there's a Holy Spirit who's a comforter. But then under the sun, he's looking and he says, there's no one who's coming alongside those who are oppressed. And those who are oppressed, who are being oppressed by oppressors, the oppressors just seem to be getting stronger because there's no people standing up to do anything about it. The issue he's wrestling here with is not so much that we are doing something wrong or that people are doing something wrong by our 
actively, not dealing with us actively doing anything wrong, but rather the question of by inactively, by passively standing by and doing nothing, what are we allowing the oppressors to do? By passively doing nothing, we're allowing the oppressors to be stronger. When we don't speak back against the evil and the oppression in this world, He's essentially saying, pointing us, to, pointing us to this fact that we are allowing the evil to get stronger. So that's this issue of evil and oppression. And he sees that there's no one to come alongside them. There's no one to comfort them because he's going to flesh out for us the reasons why. Because everyone is busy about their own selves, about their own needs, about their own desires, about their own pursuits of getting to the top. So that's where he goes to as he fleshes this out a bit longer. Look at verse 4. Then I saw all the toil and all the skill and work from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and striving after wind. So that idea, all of this work, all of this toil, what's your motivation for doing that? It's a good question for you to ask and for me to ask. The work that you do, what's your motivation for doing it? Is it for the sake of others or is it for the sake of yourselves? And where he's pointing to here is it's, he looks across under the sun and he sees people working and toiling and it's out of man's envy for his neighbor. It's out of seeing what your neighbor has and coveting that and wanting that and almost wishing they didn't have it and you had it. And so you strive to work and to build a bigger house that your neighbor will be envious of you. And you're doing it out of envy to them. So he sees this kind of across the globe that the motivation is envy, this kind of resenting what someone else has and you do not. And that's why you give yourself to work over and over and over again, because you want what they have. And envy is one of those very subtle things where you can sometimes, envy is one of those things, you don't even realize you're doing it. One of the reasons why it's all often lumped, it is lumped together with those seven deadly sins. Envy is very subtle where you're coveting what your neighbor has, and you don't even realize sometimes that the motivation for what you do is out of kind of spite, out of envy, out of wanting what they have and not out of what the scriptures call us to, to please the Lord and to to work and to toil. Because work is good. Work is given to us by God. There's going to be work in the new heavens and the new earth. In eternity, we will be working. Working isn't a part of the curse. Working is good, but what is the motivation for why you work? And this is the root issue that he's dealing with, that we're not working for the sake of honoring the Lord, but we are working for this out of, or we're motivated by envy. And then he kind of fleshes out, so what do you do in response to that? So if you are someone who's motivated by envy, there's kind of two different responses. Verse 5 is a proverb. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. I just hear someone say, what? (laughs) That is the response you should have when you read that. The fool folds folds his own hands and self-cannibalizes himself. Folding your hands is a picture of someone who's lazy, who's not working, who's refusing to work. The person who is lazy, the person who refuses to work, is destroying themselves. 
So what's the response? So one response can be, look at, I, I am motivated by envy of my neighbor. I don't want to be motivated by envy of my, envy of my neighbor. So one response is, well, I'm just going to not work at all then. And Solomon says, that's only going to destroy yourself. That's like sitting on your knuckles and gnawing on them. You're going to destroy yourself. So then verse 6, he says, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. So the other response to the envy is, I'm just going to give myself two, the picture is of, of two hands coming together and trying to hold as much as you can. So you work and you toil and you work and you toil and you're just trying to fill your hands with as much as you can. So to avoid asking any of those other questions. Kind of this art of distraction that we are so good at. That the ways in which we deal with the evil and the oppression in this world so often is we distract ourselves with something else. And what Solomon is giving us here is someone who distracts themselves by just working and working and working and working. They just give themselves over fully to their work and they work and they work and they work and they try to distract themselves but also hope out of that that they're going to have this kind of quietness of soul or this kind of happiness or contentment. And Solomon points out that that is all vanity. It's vanity. And he says, in, in contrast to two hands full of toil, is one hand that is closed, handful of quietness. Quietness is a word that refers to kind of this deep-seated peace, this contentment that you have in life something that we know is found in relationship with Jesus. So better is one hand that is full of quietness. And what's the other hand doing then? It's open hand, generous giving, working, standing up for the oppressed, giving ourselves to works for the sake of others, for the sake of making much of Jesus. So those are the two images that he then deals with as a bit of a, a proverb and that picture of two hands full of toil, one of the commentar commentaries spoke about how it's the kind of person, it just kind of hit me in a different way as I was reading through this and studying through this. The picture of someone who's always looking to tomorrow, that they work and they work and they work. And they say, well, tomorrow it's going to get better. And I, and I do this all the time with my kids. And the, and the commentary, I want, I want to just read a, a portion of this commentary that I, I photocopied here. This is what he wrote in it in response to that verse. I tend to wish my life away at the moment because we have small children at home. And I saw that and smiled. I love them so much, of course, but I do also sometimes think, surely it's easier when they're bigger and there'll be no more tantrums and no more diapers and the rational conversations are the order of the day. Not long ago, I was walking with two of my children. It was clear to anyone who saw us that things were not going very well and that dad was living right on the edge. That's the story of my life. A neighbor observed us and said to me as we passed, these are the best days of your life. <laughs> I can assure you it was not what I wanted to hear at the time, but I realized later that my neighbor's proverbial wisdom is exactly the point our preacher, Solomon, might have made had he accompanied us in our disastrous outing. Stop chasing the wind. Stop thinking the future will be better and easier. Stop thinking that if only things were different, you would be a better person, and one day you will be a better father. You don't know the future, what lies around the corner, whether good or ill. Perhaps these are indeed the very best days of your life, because tomorrow you may be dead. It's a happy thought. 
But this is where he concludes. Live the life you have now instead of longing for the life you think you will have, but you actually can't even control to get it. This picture of someone who's always looking to tomorrow and not able to enjoy the gifts that God has given to us today. Always looking to tomorrow and not able to enjoy the moment. And, and Yvonne knows this. My wife knows this. I am terrible. Well, well, we will drive somewhere fun. And all I'm thinking about is the drive home and how we're going to get home. And I have a hard time not thinking about that and just enjoying the moment that God has placed in front of me to enjoy. And that's what Solomon is telling us here that better to have one handful of quietness and be able to give and enjoy those times as they come when God gives them to you and to thank him for them. He goes on to say in verse 7, again, again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other. So that's the key for who this person is. He has no other. There's no one around him, either son or brother. Yet there is no end to all his toil and his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, but who am I toiling to deprive myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. So he sees a man who had no one around him. He was completely alone. He didn't want to have people around him either. He just wanted more and more stuff. He's striving and striving and striving. And anyone who, who has strived after wealth, what you find when you say, I, I'm gonna, I want a million dollars. I want to get a million dollars. You get a million dollars and you realize that's not satis satisfying you. So you need $2 million and it's more striving. Striving after the things of this world in that way only leads to more striving. And this is this man who has no one else around him. So it's a picture of a man who has strived and strived and strived all the way to the top, trampled whoever he wants to get to the top. He's in the restaurant. He can pay for everyone's meal at the restaurant, but no one wants to sit with him. And that doesn't matter because he doesn't want to sit with them either. And Solomon says it's all just vanity, that we were created to not go through this life alone. And it's not speaking about only marriage, because we know from the New Testament, Paul says, in fact, singleness is preferred. If you can stay single, do it. Only get married if you feel like, by getting, if you think that by getting married, you can better fulfill God's mission for your life, then get married. But if you can be single like me, stay single. That's what Paul flat out says. It's not only talking about marriage here, but it's talking about the idea that we were created for relationship and that we flourish most in relationship. And when we refuse to have people around us to speak into our lives, to do life together, we're moving forward on a path that God never intended us to be on. Use the term Christian ninja before. So many people think, well, I got my relationship with Jesus, this vertical relationship, and that's all I need. And what Solomon tells us and what the New Testament tells us, that's not all you need. That God has put others around you for your benefit and for your flourishment. I just had a fly fly on me. <laughs> fly in February. That we were built for relationships. So if you are married, the Proverbs speak about your spouse as your aloof. It's L-L-L-U-P. Alap or aloof is how you pronounce it. It's a word that means confidant or best friend. So if you are married, your spouse should be that first confidant, your first best friend. 
If you're not married, there should be those around you who can speak into your life, who you do life together with. Because this is how God created us to live. And if you're married, there should be those outside of your marriage as well. He's going to get to that. That should be speaking into your life, both as, as a marriage, but as individuals as well. That God created us best to thrive in relationship. And some of you are like, I'm an introvert. I don't need people. I don't want people. I am an introvert to the core. (laughs) I am an introvert, and I know that I need people. When I first became lead pastor of this church, uh, the way that our governance structure was set up, uh, I was concerned that I would have too much power. Uh, The pastor is never meant to be a CEO president. The pastor is meant to serve together with a plurality of elders. And so the very first thing I shared with the board and with you was to move forward with this plurality of elders, to have godly proven men around me to speak into my life because I know I can move astray if I don't have godly people speaking into my life. And what a blessing that has been to have godly men around me saying, you're doing a good job here, work on this. We are built for relationship. We need each other. You may think you don't, but you're only fooling yourself. This is why God has created the family of God, the church, brothers and sisters in the Lord that we can lock arms together with because we're stronger together. And he's going to move into that in this next section. Number nine, uh, verse nine. This is a passage you probably know well if you've been to a wedding before. This gets read a lot at weddings. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if you live together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Like I read at weddings a lot to refer to husband and wife, the threefold cord. And then who's the third cord? It's God. Now read that in context. Is that what that's saying? (laughs) That's correct, Marianne. (laughs) And if you said yes, I would have went along with yes, because you are smarter than I am. But no, that's not the context. Now, we can apply it to marriage, and we're going to do that in a second. But the context of this is not that the third cord is God. But that is a great picture, to have husband and wife with God as the third cord interwoven throughout your marriage. And that's a biblical principle that I would affirm. But that's just not what Ecclesiastes 4 is saying here. What he is saying is two is better than one. You know what? Three is better than two. And if he went on, he would say, and four is better than three. And five is better than four. Talking about the strength in numbers, what happens when we lock arms together. And there's four things he mentions in here as to what is the benefit of that, of why you shouldn't be doing life alone, but that you should be doing life together with other believers. Four, there's a good reward for their toil. So you can accomplish more together. One person setting up these chairs here, It's going to go a lot slower, be less effective than a team of people doing it. It's the same 
That is true in every area of your life. So often we try to do things ourselves, and yet it would be done better if we're locking arms together and doing it together. New ideas come out. People see things differently than you do. I mean, in marriage, that's intensified. God has given you someone who sees things that you cannot see. So you do well to heed that as a gift from God. So there's strength in numbers in that way. And then if you fall, someone there to lift you up. And you hear terrible stories of people who live alone, who end up falling and breaking a bone and not able to move. So that kind of vivid illustration that is true in every area of our lives. And it's not that there's anything wrong with living alone. That's not what I'm saying at all. But this idea that when someone falls, you got someone who's going to lift you up. When you are heartbroken and mourning, you have someone that's going to come alongside you and mourn with you. It's going to rejoice with you, which often is a lot harder than mourning. I shared this before. Sometimes it's a lot harder to rejoice with those who rejoice than to mourn with those who mourn. When someone mourns the loss, kind of sometimes can, you know, it's easy to come alongside them in some regard. But imagine trying to now try to rejoice with someone who got the job, the promotion that you wanted. So you are in competition with some co-worker. They get the promotion that you do not get. Do you rejoice with them when they rejoice? Or do you look at them and say, I deserve that. I'm a harder worker than you. Sometimes it can be so much harder to rejoice with those who rejoice. We lift each other up. And then he goes on to say, um, when two lie together, they keep warm. Just true. Sometimes my kids crawl into my bed at night. I'm cold, daddy. Well, then get a blanket. There's a lot of body heat that comes across with another kid sleeping beside you that makes it hard for me to sleep. Sometimes it's too warm. But that's the truth. Two lie together. And this is a kind of a picture of people who are traveling. So in this day, people traveling uh, to faraway lands, a lot stronger together. You can protect each other, which is going to be the next one. When you're sleeping at night and it's cold at night, sometimes you just got to snuggle up to them to get warm. Goes on. The next one is in, in terms of protection. Um, verse 12, one man might prevail against one who is alone, but two will withstand him. So it's this idea of protection. You're stronger together when you do life together. Threefold cord is not easily broken. You add a hundred cords to that, threat, that, to that rope, and that's going to be even harder to, broke, to break. That's the message that we're seeing here. We're not meant to live alone. We're not meant to flourish alone. We're meant to flourish as part of the family of God. And one of the commentaries uses the, word, the, the phrase, out of this we see the important need that every one of us has to embrace the ecclesia. Ecclesia is the Greek word for church, which is where the root word of Ecclesiastes come from. Embrace the ecclesia, embrace the family of God that God has given you, those that you are looking at around you for your benefit and for their benefit. That you are stronger together when we lock arms together. So let's embrace that God has given us one another as gifts 
for our sanctification, for our holiness, for our growth as believers. So embrace the ecclesia. We are stronger together. The last section is a, is the, is a story almost. You just follow the story. Verse 13, better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who knew, no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people of whom he led, yet those who will come after will not rejoice in him. Surely this is vanity and a striving after the wind. So again, that repetition, striving after the wind, chasing the wind, it's vanity. What's the story he gives here of the perfect example of a rags to riches American dream person? Someone who had nothing, who worked their way to the top. And they get to the top and what they discover is it's lonely at the top. So if you are pursuing that pursuit, that aim to find quietness of soul, to find that answer to the longing that every one of us has in our heart, that there's got to be something more to this. There's, there's got to be some kind of joy or peace beyond what I can experience in this world. If you're looking to a rags to riches type story, if I can just acquire this and then there'll be the answer to all of my problems. I will know joy. I will know happiness. Solomon says, I feel sorry for you because it's not found there. Even in the perfect example of a rags to riches story, this man gets to the top and he discovers it's very lonely up there. So the message that he's trying to bring home to us, or maybe even a question that I would encourage you to ask at this point I'll get to the question in a second. The message that he's telling us here is that God has created us to flourish in relationship. That loving others selflessly is how God designed every one of us to flourish. Putting yourself ahead of someone else, putting the interests of someone else ahead of you, as Jesus did for us, is how God created us to flourish. And what's interesting here is Solomon doesn't say, you know, put yourself ahead of you, put, put someone else ahead of yourself, others ahead of yourself, because it's going to make you more spiritual. He doesn't say that. It's true, but he doesn't say that. Put others ahead of yourself because then you're going to honor God. And that is true, but that's not what he says. Put others ahead of yourself, and that's how you will know quietness of soul. That's how you will know joy. That joy is found in giving your life away, not in acquiring and acquiring and acquiring. And that is a counterintuitive message, a countercultural message. It's counterintuitive to everything we think. That we think if we acquire, 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 I want, I need, if I get what I want, then I'm going to be happy. The message of the scriptures, where God calls us to live, the gospel is, that is found, happiness is found, joy is found in giving your life away. It's not how much you have, but in what you do with what you have. To live with open hands is a blessing to others. And it's going to be healthiest for you. And it's going to be healthiest for others when you live like that. I put a line in your notes, that last line in the point, living life together in community and mutual interdependence is better for everyone including yourself. So a question I just want to challenge you with that it comes out of this passage is this. What jobs or tasks can you today put by the wayside 
so your relationships can flourish. So often we say, I'm, I'm, what's the first response when you say, how is someone doing? How are you doing? I'm busy. I say the same thing, looking at myself in the mirror. I'm busy. And we convince ourselves we're too busy, oftentimes for relationship, because we're pursuing other matters. I'm busy. I'm too busy. So is there anything in your life that you need to set aside, maybe work that you need to set aside so you can focus on the relationships in your family? And you say, well, I'm working to provide my family a life that I never had. And that's what Solomon tells us. It's vanity. Don't even try to do that unless the life you never had is a life of an active mom and dad in the home. If what you're talking about is you want to give your kids what, they, what you didn't have and you define that as more stuff and more money and a bigger house, then that is vanity. That's futile. I've talked to many people over the years, young adults who sometimes older, and you know what they've never said to me? I've never had one single person ever say to me, you know, my dad used to drive me to school in a beat-up pickup truck. And I'm just embarrassed. I've never forgiven him for that. My dad drove me in a rusty Hyundai accent. So embarrassing. I've never forgiven him for that. Never had anyone say that to me. But you know what I have had people say to me? My dad was never home. My dad gave himself to his career. And I never saw him. And all I really wanted was to see him. All I really wanted was him to be present in my home. It's how God created us to live in family. It's how God created us to live in relationship. And so is there anything in your life that you need to set aside? Maybe you're too busy in a certain area that you need to set aside for the relationships in your family to thrive, for you to be present in your home. Maybe there's something you need to set aside that you can be more present with those in our church family. Titus 2 speaks of older building into the younger, older women building into the younger, older men even living in such a way that they're building into the younger men. Is there something that maybe you've always just said, I'm too busy to do that. Maybe later in life I'll do that when I'm retired. Is there something in your life that you need to give up that will enable you to do that? So embrace the ecclesia. Embrace the family of God. God has given you one another, each other as a gift. Let's embrace that. And sometimes we can see that under the sun, we look at the oppression in this world. And we can say, hey, it's better that I wasn't even born. It's better that I'd be dead. And that's the Solomon answer here. But what the answer is above the sun that we see fleshed out for us in the New Testament. With Christ, life is worth the living. Because Jesus is alive, life is worth the living. Jesus died on the cross for your sin, that you can be in relationship with him. He rose from the dead that you can know life with him, eternal life, abundant life, joy and satisfaction beyond what anything this world can even ever understand. And he is alive today and he's at work in this world. And so because he lives, life is worth the living. You know that song? 
Because he lives, life is worth the living because he's at work in this world and he wants to use you to bring about what he's doing. Not only does he want to use you, he invites you to the blessing of being used of him to make a difference in this world. To stand up for those who are oppressed. To give yourself in relationship to others in the family of God. To make yourself available to your neighbor who is far from Christ, but has asked you questions. And maybe what you need to do is stop doing some of what you're doing to make yourself available. So embrace the ecclesia, embrace the family of God. At the same time, remember the truth of the gospel that because he lives, life is worth the living. Because he lives, he wants to, he's alive and he's at work in this world. And he invites you to be a part of what he's doing. Let me pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for Ecclesiastes. Thank you for what Solomon wrestles with here that we can learn from. And I pray for us together as a church family that you would, through your spirit, continue to unite us together. That you would continue to impress upon brothers and sisters in Christ here to be building into each other, to be bearing burdens with one another, that when one is suffering, that we will come alongside them in their time of need. And may we not turn a blind eye to the evil and the oppression in this world, but may we give ourselves fully to storming the gates of hell, the power of your spirit, to see the captives freed, to see people coming to faith in Christ and knowing the joy and the peace that's found in relationship with him. May we together as a church embrace this gift that you've given to us of one another, doing life together in mission together, seeking to make much of you in this world. May you be glorified in and through this church family in our relationships and in our pursuits. May we give our lives fully to the work that you have for us until you return with the motivation of seeking to make much of Jesus in this world. And thank you. Thank you that because Jesus is alive today, we know that life is worth the living. Life is worth the living as you use us for your purposes, all because he lives. Let's, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you've been encouraged by our time today in God's Word, we'd love for you to connect with us on social media and let us know. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at SCBC London. Until next time, I'm your host, Ryan, and this has been Stony Creek Radio. God bless. Thank you.